anybody there? Hey, Jamie, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Ooh, excellent. How you doing? Oh, I'm well. Thank you so much for your time. Do you mind if we begin at the very beginning? Uh, may I ask where you're from? So I am from a small town of Port Angeles, Washington, way up in the uh, northwest corner of Washington State. Okay, and that has been home most of your life, or are you somewhere else now? Yeah, so I, I grew up in uh, Port Angeles and other small towns up in the northwest. Um, when I was about 21, I moved to Sacramento, um, and then mm. I was there for a few years, and then moved out to San Francisco in the Bay Area, where I was for about eight years, and then now I'm back in, uh, as of like a couple months ago, I'm back in Sacramento. Oh, okay. Um, so I've been kind of, kind of around Northern California and Western Washington. Okay. Is there uh, such a thing as culture shock going from Washington down south or is it all pretty similar to you you know kind of from my experience the the whole entire west coast is kind of its own thing <laughs> whether you go to san diego or anchorage alaska you know because i've been kind of all around up and down um there, there's a fairly you, you know similar you know definitely west coast thing happening mm. the second you go east and you kind of like get past colorado um all of a sudden, like, I feel like there's that, that's where like a culture shock thing happens, <laughs> at, at least for me, for me. <laughs> right. So growing up, when you were first getting involved creatively in, in writing in particular, what was the thing that did you in that you, that made you want to make creativity or storytelling part of your life? I actually remember, I mean, I guess I should say my mom was an English teacher. So I mm. was just surrounded by books my whole entire childhood. And I remember I was really in love with um, uh, this book, Gentle Ben. I forget the, the author's name at, at the moment, but he wrote a, a lot of like adventure books for, for young boys and they really gripped me. And then I started reading like Steinbeck at probably too young of an age, but there was something <laughs> just magical about books. You know, they, they seemed they seemed just like the, the most beautiful, like just artifact. And so very, very, very young age, I was just fascinated by the book form. Um, and how I actually started writing, in, in the back of my mind, I was always like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a novel someday. I'm mm. just going to do this. It seemed like a very, like a, a, a mountain to climb, you know. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in high school, I think I was a freshman, um, I had a really bad Achilles injury. Oh. And sports were my life for a while. But I was like, you know, in a walking cast and couldn't really do sports or anything for oh, a good solid six months, you know, which was kind of traumatizing because my, my whole identity revolved around sports <laughs> wow. at that point. And so to kind of to, to cope, I actually sat down and started writing and <laughs> um, almost as like a therapy, but also just because like, well, got nothing better to do, you know. Yeah. Um, Were you writing about the injury then, at the time? No, I, I've never gotten too into like autobiographical stuff. Okay. Um, I guess like I have a little bit, I, I should say later on, I did a little bit, but mm. I, my first story was actually about my dog. <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> so it what, did have like an adventure thing. Oh, so it was a dog adventure. What happened there? If I may pry a little bit more. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was, I still like, I still have that very first story. And every now and then I, I'll go back and glance at it. Uh, it was something um, I'm blanking on the name, but it was, it was about a, a dog that was trying to catch the sunset. Oh, and goodness. my dog's name was uh, twilight. So it was kind of apropos. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was the whole thing. Like a dog oh, that's such chasing a, to, to catch the, the sunset. Such a beautiful image. How old were you at the time? High school, you said? I was 14. You were yeah. 14. Oh goodness. Well, that's uh, definitely something to hold on to. I'm glad that you mentioned that you go back and look at some of your 
some of your work because I, I think we need a boost, you know, every now and then I realize that as adults, especially creative adults, we forget the the wonder of childhood. We forget the things that, that just uh, make us feel like we can still dream a little bit. And that's kind of a nice reminder, but you have uh, a variety of different interests. You, you write about politics, you write about technology and the future primarily. So has that been a part of your life as well? Or did you come into that eventually or later on? Yeah, I think I came into that. Um, I mean, I can give you a little story about why I even write essays in general. Of course, yeah. Um, I think that you and probably some of your listeners might actually like feel for this. So I always just wanted to be a fiction writer, right? Mm. And at, at this point in my life, I've gotten like, you know, a couple couple books published, published with uh, small presses. And I run a lit journal and I've gotten, you know, well over 50 short stories published here or there. Mm -hmm. And the the thing that was always just kind of frustrating was that, um, you know, no matter how big of a place I got a story published, not that I've been in the Atlantic or anything, but, you know, semi kind of like in the lit, lit scene, well-known places I've been published, mm -hmm. um, like no one reads it. You post it on Twitter, like mm. crickets. You send it to my mom, you know, and she'll read it, you know, but like my, my friends, my, my dear friends, my closest friends won't read my stories mm. and, uh, or, you know, just don't for, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and this was frustrating to me and you also make no money, right? Not that yeah. money like matters necessarily, but like, I, I think I made a grand total of like 50 bucks <laughs> in like the last 20 years of fiction writing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and in, in my professional life, I was an, an editor. Um, this was, this goes back maybe five years ago, four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. I was an, an editor for uh, a company called findlaw.com. Okay. And uh, so I managed a team of writers there. And I also like did, did some writing myself. And, you know, it would be posted online and hundreds, sometimes thousands of people would read and share these articles. And it was just kind of fun, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was, I was at home and I was thinking, like, why don't I do this? also because I, apparently i can um like write essays but why don't i do it like what i care about and and, and actually tackle topics that i'm interested in not just like legal topics yeah and so it was kind of a challenge to myself and and the first few essays that i wrote were just you know nonsense terrible for some reason there was there was just nothing there mm -hmm. and so i put that aside for a little while um but I, I came back to it and I was like, I'm going to write a, like, as if I'm going to pretend like I'm writing a fiction story, but I'm going to write nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And I just, so that's what I started to do. And uh, I mean, long story short, the very first essay that I wrote that I was like actually proud of and I sent out, I got it picked up immediately and I got like $200 for it. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, Oh, this is a thing. Okay, this is a thing. <laughs> and so I just like kept writing essays and and I take breaks every now and then because I do still care way more about writing fiction. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I just sold a piece for 500 bucks uh, two weeks ago. Oh, lovely. And I've, I've never, I've literally never seen a, hardly a penny from, from writing fiction, even though I've spent thousands and thousands of hours, you know, writing fiction. And yeah. there's just something like it's dumb, but there's something very gratifying and just like, the basic fact of someone reading what you wrote. <laughs> Absolutely. And there is, yeah. there is a, a kind of utilitarian need for that work. I mean, it is, it is informative, it gives perspective, and it doesn't have to be a story necessarily in a traditional way, but rather something that can carry that additional informative kind of, uh, kind of thing. Now, when you're constructing these essays or putting these things together, how do you begin? Because I, I guess that's sort of a, a 
maybe a barrier that I personally have where I feel like there's a lot to take in in the topics that you're talking about. What is the way in for you when you're writing about politics, technology, or the future, or or these things converging? There are a couple of different ways to do it, I think. And uh, one one thing that that is, I think, advice that even a lot of like writing coaches would, would give you, but I think it's true, is just kind of like don't be too precious about it and just just go, mm. um, and then maybe come back to it later. When I when I was an editor for Fine Law. Um, I managed a team of, of six writers and each writer wrote five to six articles per day. That was like, they're, they're, they were only like 350 words, but on fairly heavy topics. Mm. And the, the thing that I would do to keep them encouraged was I would give them really solid topics um, with a great, you know, uh, beginning title. I mean, having a title is, is kind of like your thesis in a sense. <laughs> yeah. And then just like, then, then you just kind of go. And the best writers that I would see were the ones that would just like kind of mindlessly jump into it as if they were like talking to a friend, not mm -hmm. writing on a computer. I see. And that, I mean, that's, that's like a, I, I can't do that. Like, <laughs> I really can't do that. But I know that that's kind of like the gold standard. So I do attempt to do that sometimes. Mm. Um, to be to be honest, like when I sit down to write an essay, it's very sloppy. It's lots of <laughs> lots of starts. And and sometimes I'll write a couple pages and like it ends up being the fifth paragraph. I'm like, oh, that should be the first paragraph. You know, there's, there's a lot of that. So. There's a lot of uncovering or digging, maybe a little bit of prospecting where you're picking up the pieces as you as you go, it sounds like. So when, yeah. when you were in in this um, this firm that was uh, creating these uh, essays and things like that what were some difficulties that you experienced or, or was there a moment where you had a very difficult experience managing folks or you had to you had to figure a problem a managerial problem that you that you realized okay i got to i got to do something and maybe uh, take away from that yeah, so that was actually my second job as as an editor slash content manager. My my first job was with this uh, a way smaller company, uh, LegalMatch.com. dot mm. um, Fine Law is huge; they're owned by like Thomson Reuters. It's like a big big place. Oh, I see. Um, but when I was at Legal Match, I learned, and this was like the the most important thing, was you just have to be very 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 careful who you hire because writing is is just it kind of is not something that you can teach um, at mm. that some very basic level, especially to be a great writer. Because um, I worked with a lot of people early on who, I mean, who had law degrees plus um, uh, MBAs. I mean, like crazy smart people, mm -hmm. way overqualified for what they were doing. Yeah. Um, some people, like it didn't matter. They, they, they literally just couldn't write in a conversational tone. And I mean, that, that's like the, the, the trick, right? Is yeah. to write in a way that as if you're talking. <laughs> and I, I actually don't even know exactly what, what that is. I, I, think that, I think that it comes with reading a lot of fiction, uh, maybe reading like very accessible essays like Ma Malcolm Gladwell essays or, or like John Ronson or Hunter S. Thompson. You know, I think if you read a lot of those, I think that you can get a voice in, your, in your, the back of your mind that's, that's helpful. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, like it's it's weird to say, and I I mean, I think that you either kind of have it or you don't. Um, mm. I think it's it's almost an innate skill at some level. I see. Okay, and so do you feel that enough training or enough skill building can bridge that gap at some point, eventually? I'm I, I guarantee that there is a way to do it. I I, I guarantee because it's mm. it's you know um but 
I, I think that, I mean, for me, uh, my favorite thing about writing, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, is just uh, the voice, the voice behind the thing. I don't care if it's terribly written. If, there, if there's a voice and it's compelling, that's what keeps me reading. My, my favorite authors have just like, voices that you hear in the back of your mind in the middle of the day, like, like, uh, Celine or Richard Brodigan or like someone like Hunter S Thompson, just, you know, I, there's a voice there. And I think that that's the thing that can't necessarily be taught. Mm. Um, cause that's like, you have to like literally tweak someone's personality and right, right. you know, that's the last thing you can actually change about someone's their personality. If someone Absolutely. just has like kind of like a dry personality, that's the best they're going to do on, um, on paper. Unless like, there is a magical trick that, that I'm not necessarily aware of. That's very true because it has to come from the self, right? And otherwise, if you're not expressing who you are as a, as a human being, you're only emulating at some point. And so it, it's almost like just being completely honest about what your train of thought is. And I think a lot of folks definitely withhold um, out of fear of, of perhaps not feeling or not sounding professional enough or perhaps having that kind of mentality of like, oh, I'll, I'll never be able to reach those heights of being such a unique voice. So perhaps, um, do you think self-inhibiting is a factor in all of this? I really do. I think that there's also a broader um, problem, let's just say, mm. that I think that a lot of American literature from the smallest lit journals to the New York Times to, you know, and everywhere in between. I think that for some weird reason, American literature doesn't encourage wild and wacky and over the top voices. Yeah. Um, I've written, I've written about this before. I just have a medium article that, that I, I posted uh, a little while ago called American literature is a disgrace. And <laughs> I love it. Tell me more. Here, here's, yeah, here's my pitch. Cause I think this is actually true. I wrote this kind of for fun, but I think it's true. Um, if you look at American music or American painting or our movies for sure, absolutely over the top, they attract the wildest, the craziest people. Mm. Um, they're known often globally for their wild, wacky personalities. Um, I think that, I don't know for sure, but I think that if you're like, you know, someplace else in the globe and to say California, people probably picture like wild people, you know, cause that's <laughs> what we project into the culture. Um, when you think American literature, you just, you just don't think wild and wacky and over the top characters. You, you think very, very, very safe. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's understated, it's mm -hmm. melodramatic. Yeah. Um, whether it's in the first person or not, it's very like scholarly in a sense. It's, right. and you know, you know, like no one's really pressing boundaries or pressing buttons or being yeah. over the top crazy. There's no Iggy pop in American fiction. You know, mm. like I love someone like, um, uh, oh, wow. I'm blanking at her name who wrote, uh, my year of rest and relaxation. Um, Oh, uh, Oh, Anyway, her like her, her voice is, is magical and, and it's great, but but even that isn't like the most uh like out there thing. There, there's no Celine, you know. I don't know if you've read Celine, but like he's just uh screaming at you. He's a, a French author. Mm -hmm. He's he's just screaming at you on at like page one, and it's marvelous. <laughs> like is it's that Otessa? My year yeah, of so Tessa Ma Moshbag. Yes, yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I um, love her. She's amazing. Oh, uh, that's yeah. that's great. Now, is this uh, one of the one of the reasons why you decided to begin an, a literary review or when did jokes literary review become a reality for you or something that had to be done? 
Uh, yeah, great question because I, I do actually have a very specific answer for this. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, this this was when I was working my day job. This was this was at the, the fine law for some reason I keep talking about. Mm. But um, I was I was working that job and I was also at the same time I was um, uh, a submissions editor for uh, a highbrow literary journal, mm. um. Place that publishes like Dave Eggers, that sort of a thing. Yeah. They've recently become uh, defunct. The, the the head editor retired, so they don't exist anymore. Oh, um, it, it was called Fifth Wednesday Journal, but it was you know very well established journal. Um, and what was frustrating for me was that I I just never accepted the stories that I liked the most. Huh. Why is um, that? All, yeah, because they I I just knew what was going to end up in the um, in the actual print publication. And it was frustrating for me that I would send on stories, um, accept and, and send on stories that I just knew like more often than not, we're not going to end up in the final journal. And mm -hmm. it was exciting, you know, to, to pick the piece that was like, Oh, I, I, I discovered that piece and it's in the, the journal, you know, it was, it was exciting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I would just like kind of know what was going to fit with the tone of the, of the place. And I would just like, so I would do that. And I was always just reject the, mm -hmm. <laughs> the pieces that I, that I, you know, knew we're going to make it in but the ones but, that you that felt loved. had had a bit more tenacity right yeah yeah okay. or that were just too goofy you know because i do yeah. like kind of goofy things um so <laughs> that was when i was like i'm going to start my own literary journal and and jokes actually comes from uh uh an early story that i wrote there was a character named jokes <laughs> and he was just this this kind of like uh, mysterious character that I could never figure out who if he was real or not that sort of a thing. Um, so I thought that was kind of perfect to name it Jokes Review. And in the very first issue, I actually like reached out to a guy uh, who who submitted to Fifth Wednesday Journal, and I was like, hey, like I really like your piece. I, I pushed it up the, uh, the the food chain. Um, just FYI, if you have anything else laying around this kind of in this tone, like I'd love to publish it. Um, and I did. So he was like a kind of well well established name that I got in the very first uh, first issue of Jokes Review. Oh wow! And uh, so now I do kind of make a have a point of pride of accepting things that like you know even if it's not the best written piece, even if it's uh, maybe even poorly written. But if there's something there, if there's if the author has something, if it's unique, if it's uh, you know memorable, if you know, if it's going to be rejected everywhere else, but there's mm. something, some reason why it should be, we'll, we'll take it. We'll absolutely take it. <laughs> oh, that's such a f fascinating and important philosophy to have, especially in, in the, the lit review world, I imagine. And I just want to give a quick shout out because you have published, uh, one of my favorite voices in the world, uh, an old friend, Gabe Congdon, uh, who did your, um, who did how to Renaissance for jokes, uh, literary review. Um, he was, uh, pretty awesome. Yeah. I noticed that you, uh, tweeted about that book and, and yeah, just a, just a quick shout out to Gabe as well. Like he submitted to our very first issue. He was the, the first story oh, in no our way. first issue. <laughs> yeah. If you go back in the, in the archives there, the very first story was him. And we always kind of kept in touch because I knew that he like had a thing that, like you exactly said, so, so, so unique. His voice is not anywhere else. <laughs> and so he, he came to me uh, a year or two ago with a, a book manuscript 
Um, and it was pretty raw and, but, and, you know, I'm not even necessarily a huge fan of like the Renaissance. I'm just kind of mm-hmm. not, um, nothing about it like calls to me, but like, I love Gabe and I love his writing. I was like, <laughs> we're going to make this work. Like this is, we're definitely going to publish this. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think and I'm it's, glad that we did. It was a fun project. Yeah. And, and that's great to hear for him, but also for the, for the work that you're doing, because those are the kind of people that fall by the wayside a lot of the time, because they're just so much of their own perspective their own voice that that they don't really belong in the landscape as you as you mentioned and so i i think what you're doing is incredibly valuable so i'm just really glad the jokes literary review exists but running an entity like this and i guess an organization now like this how does that how does that happen how what's the day-to-day of of being an editor and running a literary review it is i think kind of as much um or as a little of a, of a chore as you kind of want it to be. Um, I always wish I could do so much more th- with jokes review. I, I really, really, really do. Like we, we are just a very bare bones operation. And um, if I just had more time, I would do yeah. so much more with it. Maybe someday I will. But like right now we put out two issues a year. We used to do print issues. Now we're kind of doing um, mostly online issues. I probably will do print issues in the future. Um, again, we, we always do our books um, as uh, as print issues. I, I, these days, it's so easy to print a book. Yeah. We, we go through uh, Amazon's um, KDP um, company, which like, it, I mean, anybody could, could get, get a book published right. like that. It's it's so simple and it's it, it's amazing, you know, because yeah. you know I, we probably sell probably half as many eBooks as we do hard copies of books, which yeah. I think is exciting. But I mean, a lot of places will just put out an eBook. And that to me no longer makes sense. It's like mm-hmm. in 20 minutes you have this thing formatted and maybe get a cover and like get this thing out as a, as a book. <laughs> right. And there's still, and, there's still something so rewarding about having a tactile project, you know, something in your fans, in your hands, like you said, an archit- uh, uh, an artifact uh, right in yeah. front of you. Yeah. For, uh, for the future. Uh, yeah. If I could actually say one more thing about that too, is, is I think that, um, the the hardest part about jokes review, um, and I think the most important part that's very underlooked for a lot of small presses, is just the uh, uh, the the book cover or the the art mm. for any given story. Um, I've I get sent books sometimes, you know, by by authors I published or that sort of a thing, and oh man, sometimes you're just like I don't I wouldn't take this book out in public and read it like on a mm. park bench. It's so <laughs> ugly, <laughs> and it just does not do the, the correct service to like the the, the authors. So we yeah. always, above all else, we take so much care to get the book covers like as as well designed as humanly possible. And I really truly wish that um, other small presses out there would take more care. Um, mm. my, my, uh, my first book that I got published is called, um, uh, politicians or superheroes. And <laughs> it, it's published by a, a small press called, uh, Pisky's porch out in uh, upstate New York. Great place. I really like what they do. I mean, great people fun to work with. I yeah. mean, everything about them is great, but, uh, <laughs> when they accepted my book and they, they sent back like the, what the cover was going to look like. I mean, my heart sank and oh. I was like, I literally wouldn't have my mom read this, you know? Oh, goodness. Um, so I was like, Hey, uh, I run a lit journal and I work with people who like do awesome covers. Is it okay if I like do my own cover for this? And thankfully he was like, Oh yeah, that's totally cool. You know? 
Um, so I went back and it's, it's my friend, Mark, uh, Mark Dwyer, who's, mm -hmm. I, I think personally, just an amazing artist. Um, and he sketched up some things and that's how it, the book cover ended up being. I think it's very cool. I, yeah, I think it's and a cool I, book cover. I have to mention that is a very appealing cover. The moment I saw it on Amazon, I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. I would totally read that. Um, oh, that's great. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned politicians are superheroes because for one, that's a hell of a title. It, it just speaks to <laughs> the the power of a good title and a good cover. It just goes a long way. But can you tell me a bit about this project? Because it's just so like there's humor popping off the title already. Maybe it's just me living in this jaded world, you know, but can you tell me about some of the origins of this piece, this book that you wrote? Yeah, it makes me very happy that you you like the title. I've I've had mixed reviews on it, so that makes me very happy. My my wife actually said that that shouldn't be the title. I was like, no, I'm doing this. This is uh, I that that book. Believe it or not, it started with a title. I I don't know why, but that thought because it was gonna be a short story that it just yeah. popped in my mind. Politicians are superheroes. I, I think on the time at the time I was working on a screenplay that was about Stan Lee. Didn't end up going anyplace, but so I had mm. superheroes like on my mind. He's like the, the Marvel guy. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I just had the idea of superheroes on my mind at the time. And I was going to write a short story and it's called politicians or superheroes. Um, but I, I, <laughs> I was like, what is this? And I obsessed over it for several months, just back my mind. And I couldn't figure out what it was. It just, nothing clicked. And then one day, I guess, I think that it was like late at night. That's how this usually happens. I just started writing and I was like, Oh wait, this is it. This is the thing. <laughs> and so I, I continued on with it. And you know what's actually kind of interesting about that is that um, it is a political satire. I think you could say it's about the end of the world and how every single year uh, the these these politicians who also have you know kind of goofy superpowers of sorts um, they they all get together and they decide what are the ten. Uh, most pressing issues that are going to destroy the planet this year. <laughs> and then they, they spend that year going about solving or, or saving the world from those 10 catastrophes. And uh, this year there's a catastrophe that's, that's so bad. It's like the worst, the worst thing ever. Um, but they're not going to do it. They're going to like ignore it. And I, I actually forget the reason why, but like it's, <laughs> it's pushed under the rug and that's not the thing they're going to do. And so then like, then it's up to like this, this ragtag group of, uh, you know, loser politicians to, uh, to kind of save the world from that one thing. And so it's, it's very silly. But uh, one thing that that's so funny to me is that um, there are, there are like aspects of it that completely kind of in a sense predict the trump thing a little mm -hmm. bit because he's so like bombastic and over the top and you know yeah, there's a little yeah. bit of that and then there's also like the the covid thing is in there because that my end of the world scenario was like a bio medical like yeah and you wrote this in thing. 2018 right or before 2018 isn't isn't that right yeah I published in 2018 so yeah most are written in like in 2016 or 17 it took me about a year to write i think so yeah definitely predated all of that it was it was pre-trump and he he was 2016 wasn't he uh-huh yeah 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 so i so i wrote it before that so it must have been 2015 mm. um so yeah so it's just 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 pretty goofy and i do every now and then go back and, and skim through that so far I, I i stand by it it's 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 held up it's very silly but i think it's holds up <laughs> oh it sounds it sounds fascinating and hilarious and i'm curious you having this experience as, as a journalist and given the topics of technology and humanism that you publish and write about, do you feel that that gives you a bit of a vantage point to see some of these things happening, like 
like the the virus or like, you know, uh, some a politician of Trump's ilk going into power. I mean, it just seems like journalists just kind of have a better idea of what the pulse is, you know, and what's to come. Yeah, that might be the case. I think, I mean, I also was kind of bitten by the transhumanism bug, the technology bug, because mm. I, I was living and working out in Silicon Valley at right. the time. I, at the time, I was living in Oakland, I think, but I was commuting down to, to Sunnyvale and San Jose and Silicon Valley. And, you know, see, so just like random people you bump into in coffee shops or whatever, I mean, I, I know a lot of people who are deeply into that transhumanism stuff. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it is kind of all consuming, especially compared to, you know, other people you might hang out with and talk about like sports with, you sure. know, like sports are great, you know, but there's kind of like, like, who cares? Like who someone's going to win this year again? Like, okay, who cares? <laughs> you know, but uh, I mean, robots might take over the human species. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Like we should care about that. <laughs> That's right. I am in full agreement. And for those who um, may be listening, can you give us a bit of a rundown on transhumanism for those who may not know? Yeah, so so uh, transhumanism, a lot of people, interestingly, in the movement don't love the term and sometimes go with futurism. Mm. But uh, what it means is using technology to overcome the uh, ailments of the human body, and also at the same time to augment the human body. Mm. So this, this is everything from trying to cure, cure cancer to um, making eyesight so we think we can see, you know, infrared light, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. or, or making us so that we're super strong. Um, right now, there there is like uh, an Olympics held every year where it's people in um, uh, like 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 those types of suits, you know, like oh, the yeah. superhuman suits or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of like practical applications for this, and and I think that kind of anyone who's alive is part of the transhumanism movement because. I mean, who isn't like at some level trying to participate in trying to cure cancer right. or trying to uh, eat a healthier diet so they can live, you know, an extra five years on this planet, that sort of thing. Um, it, it does get a little bit um, philosophically interesting, yeah. let, let's say, because it's at, at the heart, you know, there is, and I've written about this quite a bit. Um, there is a belief that, that the human body isn't a sacred thing. So this mm. sometimes presses up against people who might have religious beliefs because mm -hmm. like to them, the, the human body is sacred. So some, some dials you don't want to tweak, right? Yeah. Necessarily. Yeah. Whereas to transhumanists, it does come out of like a very like humanist worldview where the body is, is a machine. Uh, my friends and I like to, to jokingly refer to as a meat suit. Um, <laughs> yeah, heard that and, one uh, before, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we, we, we want to fix it as much as we can. To, to me and my like worldview or whatever, like the consciousness is the sacred thing. That's the one thing that, that you don't want to you know, damage in any way, but like mm. the body's kind of free reign to, to, to play around with. So, uh, so some things about the transhumanist movement might kind of rub religious folks the wrong way a little bit. But mm. um, uh, other than that, I do think that like kind of every modern person is, is at some level participating in it with our, our digital lives, mm. you know, and our, our pro medical intervention lives. All of that is, is tangentially related to this kind of like world of transhumanism. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we are so entrenched and we are defined by the apps that we use. And, and as you said, even those who don't want to partake are taking a stance on it and therefore participating in some way. But I am troubled, not troubled, I'm not troubled, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued <laughs> by the idea of consciousness being replicated or stored in a digital 
fashion in the future. Do you think human beings will still be human beings when and if that time comes that the consciousness may be stored digitally? I kind of stick my neck out and I say yes. Mm. And my, my reason for this is it's kind of, a, I have a non-standard perspective on this and, and kind of um, what is weird to me is that, okay, so so the, the trouble is when we think of a digital consciousness, we think that it's just, it's just a different thing and it's, it's, it's you know, we, we don't, can't really like put our, our fingers on like, how does this work or whatever. Uh-huh. The, the thing is that there's no one, like, the analogy doesn't work the other way either. Like right now, our brains make no sense. Um, <laughs> we, you know, our cells change every few days, every few years. We have completely different cells. Um, we, so essentially like your cells are destroyed and recreated constantly, but you're still the same thing. Um, there's a whole like sprit brain, brain phenomenon where if you sever someone's cerebellum, um, their left brain and their right brain do different things. Like, uh, you can ask someone who has, has a, their, their brain split in half, uh, what's your favorite color? And the, the verbal side of your brain will say blue. Uh, on the side of your brain that like writes, you'll write down red. Like, and there's tons of experiments about this. Wow. We are so weird. We're bizarre creatures. Mm. And so, so this is kind of like my, my thought experiment is that like right now we have this, this, this uh, kind of moral uh, dilemma of if we were to take a consciousness and put it into a digital form, is it still a consciousness? Mm-hmm. Um, but just like imagine if this were the other way around, that we were right now a digital consciousness and we were trying to <laughs> become biological, yeah. we would have the same thing, except, you know, one difference, it would be way more complicated because mm-hmm. you'd also have to think about, well, wait a minute, like, these this this meat suit brain thing it's also gonna die what's what's that about and like the cells change all the time and wait you get alzheimer's like what i don't want alzheimer's like how what do we do about yeah 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 and so like all of those are moral dilemmas at the same time and we have way more of them on this side of the the divide than we would if we were on the digital side (laughs) so that's my perspective on it oh i love that so much now given your interest in this field of of technology and looking that far ahead and having these conversations happening all around you, how has it informed the way that you live your life now? Is it still mainly curiosity or has it affected the way that you live your life? I think that mostly it's, it is curiosity, but I do try to, as much as I can, I do try to like live a, a healthy lifestyle so that I can take advantage of, um, uh, medicines as they come along because I do pay attention to you know the the death is, is a disease perspective mm-hmm. and let's try to cure death and live forever mm-hmm. that to me is exciting so yeah. I, I do try to I, I we're not there yet but I think maybe give it 50 60 years there's gonna be some real uh, work done there so I I would personally like to take advantage of that technology so I want to be here for it um, I am also just kind of really aware of my my digital self mm-hmm. um and you know it, it it paralyzes me a little bit because i you know having day jobs and stuff like that i i, I you know I'm, yeah. I'm delicate of what i do online a little bit mm-hmm. but um i i also i i do want to try to, as much as i can to 
really take advantage of digital space technologies as they come along. Right now, I'm really bored with uh, the the AR and the VR as they currently exist. Mm -hmm. And I think that Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse is really boring. Um, (laughs) But I mean, I I pay attention to those things because I think there's going to come a time when it's not boring. Do you think it'll take off? I mean, a lot of folks are saying that the metaverse is is sort of a um, a sinking ship already because of the fact that it it doesn't seem appealing or not accessible at this time. Do you think that will change and it will become the the paragon of that that type of technology? I think that it's a hardware problem uh, mm. at, at this point, and I could be wrong, but I I feel like the second Apple has a thing it's going to be the game changer because Apple's just like, they make beautiful products and they, they aren't intrusive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I, I I think that, um, you know, for someone like, cause I'm not a gamer. Um, there's no end for me. Right. And I'm like, I'd, I'd happily be a consumer of, of this world. And I, I've created NFTs. I think those are fun. Mm. I'm like pro NFT art. Um, so I'm, I kind of participate in that, but like in terms of living in an AR space, um, I mean, we, we just, we need more, you know, better global internet, um, uh, that's faster and better. We, we, and we need like a, a a headset that's not intrusive. And I think that the second that there is an in for people who aren't gamers, um, I think that's going to be a game changer because I think that a lot of the people who are right now uh, like web app developers, mm. they're going to see that, oh, there's this whole world in here that I can also create in. Right. And then once you have more creators in those spaces, uh, there's just going to be more and more and more for people to uh, to participate in. But I, I really, truly, I don't think it's there yet. And yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be terribly shocked if like Mark Zuckerberg's version of the metaverse is just too early and it kind of fails. Mm. But you know, We'll, we'll see. I, I, I definitely am curious. <laughs> Hard to tell. But yeah, uh, a couple more questions just to be mindful of your time here. Uh, that leads us to the Singularity Survival Guide. If you wanted to share a couple of thoughts on that, because I think it's leading us to that point. Can you tell me a bit about that project and, uh, and what's in store for us if we are to read the Singularity Survival Guide? <laughs> right. So just, just in case anyone doesn't know, the singularity is uh, considered the, the point in time. There, there are different versions of singularity, so it's kind of a vague term, but uh, the technological singularity is when robots achieve general intelligence, which essentially is, is sentience, mm. when they become smarter than humans. Um, interestingly, I just saw an article in the Washington Post just this morning about how apparently some uh, some developer at Google um, in in a big huff up and quit his job because he was terrified that they're creating something that's become sentient and oh, is God. there already. Uh, and apparently it was a big thing. I haven't read the article. I've only seen the tweets. So don't <laughs> necessarily take my word for it. But uh, anyway, like we, we are getting closer and closer. We're still, I think, kind of far, but we're closer to mm. artificial intelligence becoming uh, generally intelligent. So it doesn't just do one thing, just one task that we program it to do, but it can, it can take in um, sense data from the world and act upon it you know, in a general broad sphere, just like animal scanners, like we can. Um, Mm. 
that that probably is going to happen. I, I don't see any, any reason why that won't happen eventually. Um, so the Singularity Survival Guide, uh, I wrote a couple of years ago. This actually started as a nonfiction project. Oh. And <laughs> I, I had so many versions of, of a page one where it's like, um, Elon Musk is... <laughs> Yeah, uh, and I, I had, you know, so I had a page one of just describing, you know, we should be wary of robots taking over. Uh, but I, I just couldn't take it seriously myself. And it was so boring for some reason. It just seems so dry, which is like, as you can tell, is completely against what I what I stand for. Um, so I, I set the project aside and I actually ended up, how it came to life again was, um, I stumbled upon this book that's one of my, um, just kind of, it is a book that I, I reference pretty often. Um, it's called The uh, Unexpurgated Code by J.P. Dunleavy. Um, he's yeah. the author who's famous for The Ginger Man. He's just over-the-top, goofy writer. <laughs> I, I love that guy. He's so, so fun. Um, writes in a very unique style. Um, and his, his book, The Unexpurgated Code, is very short snippets um, that are explainers for how to live when you are like in high society, right? <laughs> so, but there, it's written like this kind of like silly, kind of like PG Woodhouse type of way, yeah. um, like over the top British high classness, you know, mm -hmm. taken to the extreme to the fact that it's like self parody. So it's it's like, uh, you know, I don't, I can't think of any good examples of it, but it's like how to do anything, how to brush your teeth, you know, how how to uh, how to pick your your utensils at a fine dining restaurant, um, how to how to impress your ladies when you go out to the town, that that sort of thing. Um, it's very very goofy, and I was like, oh wait a second, like this is this is what the Singularity Survival Guide could be like because it's a guide, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like a guide to British high society, but it's a guide to survive the robot apocalypse. And so if, if you read J.P. Dunleavy's book and then you read the Singularity Survival Guide, you will definitely see that I owe him a very big debt because I, <laughs> I, I lifted so much of like his humor. And uh, I, I mean, I, he's one of my main influences, so it's kind of not shocking too if you read other stuff I write. But um, it's, it's short chapters and they're very like explainers for what to do if robots you know take over and kind of the, the goofy pitch there is that the thing is um in the first chapter or like in the intro or whatever um it talks about how the, there were these two programmers in silicon valley and um they uh ended up like writing this thing this this program and it, that's a robot that is going to write the survival guide and that robot did so AI, you know, the joke is AI wrote the survival guide, right? <laughs> and so the, the AI spit out this like huge tome of work, like thousands and thousands and thousands of pages uh, of the survival guide. Um, but then, the, you know, there was this intellectual property dis dispute. It went to court for several years <laughs> and someone... Uh, on like in the court or something like this like just stole a couple of pages and so that's why it's a short book because this is just like a couple snippets taken from the survival guide and like in, oh, while goodness. it's tied up in in, uh, in some legal system <laughs> oh i absolutely so, love the lore fun. of that there's a lot of lore right <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I highly <laughs> that's that's fun. Yeah, I highly recommend that anyone who's listening checks that out. And of course, I'll be sure to include all of your content on the podcast description so that folks can take a look at it. But lastly, I want to ask you on our outlook for the future and whether you think storytelling will belong in in our future. Um what are your thoughts on that? If there is a positive note to end on, <laughs> or is it all fatalist 30, 40, 50 years from now? I mean, I, I am just definitely an optimist. So I think that that life is fun and uh, I think it always will be fun. If that's like the, the perspective you choose to take on it, that sort of a thing. Um, and my, I mean, my favorite line from any song is uh, Neutral Milk Hotel, this line, I can't believe how strange it is to be anything at all. Oh, yes. I think that that's like, that's the takeaway for everything is like, at any given moment, you know, oh, man, like life is so strange. This is so bizarre and weird. And if you always like hold on to that wonder, I think life is always gonna be great. There's no reason for life not to be awesome. Because you're here, you know, you could so easily not be here. Um, but so, so I, I've not looked into this, but I'll throw out a thing that just has, has been on my mind this week. I was recently listening to uh, Joe Rogan's episode with, um, uh, I'll have to pull up his name. So I forget his name, but that, that tech um, guy, give me one second. Uh Machio Kaku? Is that how you oh, say it? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the, he's a, um, yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Scientist, uh, physicist guy, right. the physicist guy. Yeah. So he said something that I want to look at more into um, about um, art of the future. And he said that, yes, robots will be able to do, to do all these things. I mean, right now, um, I mean, crazy, crazy things are happening with, um, you used to be able to, uh, put in a picture and a computer could spit out some words describing that picture right right now in box is a video about this they posted a week or two ago uh you can now put in text and a uh, ai will spit out an image mm -hmm. based on text and it's amazing like it's it's crazy crazy cool yeah. i i think i'm going to use this for joke review at some point oh, um, this, this technology but uh, so Machio Kaku was saying that, yeah, this is a thing, you know, AI is going to make beautiful art. I'm sure novels as well, the whole thing. <laughs> um, but in the future, uh, audiences are going to want to know how the author actually feels. And so right now there's no way to send feeling through a digital medium, but sometime in the future, we're, you're, when you experience an author's art, you're going to actually experience their feeling as well. And that will be more meaningful that comes from a person. I just don't know. That's hundreds or thousands of years down the future for all I know. But mm -hmm. the idea that like art can always evolve and it can always, there's always more to share. There's always so much more to mine and share. Uh, that's exciting to me. So I don't think art is ever going to go away. I think that we're always going to be here to entertain ourselves. And I also do think as, as art, I mean, as, as AI takes away a lot of mundane tasks, which presumably it will, that will free up a lot of people to be have more of like a maker mentality. Mm. Um, I have a lot of friends who spend time um, tinkering around just making stuff, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and just, and selling it. Like I, my favorite mug, I'm actually drinking coffee out of a mug right now that was made by a friend of mine. <laughs> and like, I, I love it. It's not like machines can't make a mug, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's the emotion behind the mug. It's that, yeah. Lovely connection. 
to the exactly. Yeah. yeah. So in in short, I, I am fully optimistic about everything. I, I think that there are a lot of doomsday scenarios that we should put our brightest minds to solve so so they don't happen. But um kind of kind of in the meantime, I think day to day there's every reason to be optimistic as as a consumer and also as a producer of art. And I'm I'm definitely excited for the future to see what what comes out. Oh Peter, that's amazing incredibly uplifting in my thinking because we get to look forward to tomorrow in a very uh, special and I guess um, uplifting light. But I want to thank you for your time and for all of this wonderful work that you're doing at Jokes Literary Review to bring unique voices to the forefront. And of course, for your awesome writing as well. I hope that folks check out Politicians Are Superheroes as well as the Singularity Survival Guide and many of the awesome work that you're doing. But Thank you so much, Peter. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I hope that we get to catch up someday down the road. Definitely, yeah. Thank you so much, and this was a lot of fun. Oh, excellent. You take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Hey there. Before I go, I just wanted to thank you for listening to the podcast. If you're enjoying Arts Calling, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen to these episodes. Every little bit helps to bring awareness about these wonderful artists that we're featuring on this podcast. And don't forget to say hi. I'm over on Twitter at CruiseFolio, and I would love to hear from you, love to know what you're working on, and I wish you the best in life and craft. Make art, make haste, and much love.